So we're continuing through 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 4. If you'd open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Just to recap the context, Paul has served in this church in Corinthia. He started this church in Corinth. Um, despite great opposition, personal attacks, outright rejection of his apostleship, he was so weary, he said in chapter 1, that he despaired of life. This is a church he started. He's visited them. This is his fourth letter. We only have two of the four letters, but this is the fourth letter he's written to them. In the midst of his sorrow, he sent representatives to them. and Yet the church was still beset. Although it was improving, it was beset by pride and rebellion and false doctrine and false gospels. But the message of 2 Corinthians is that Paul will not lose heart. He stated in chapters 1 through 3 that his work and his calling are from the Lord. The results are from the Lord, and he's going to trust God. He's going to be faithful. This is an encouragement to all of us, not just to ministers of the gospel. It reminds me of a story. Some of you may have heard the same story, and if you can tell me the name of the country, please do. Um, I looked for the, for the story because I wanted to read it to you, but... Uh, I'm pretty certain of the facts of it, and I'll just tell you, it uh, is inspiring. There was a missionary, I believe in the late 1800s, who left England and went to a country in Africa. It was the great mission, part of the missionary wave of uh, English missionaries going out all over the world. He went there with his family. He served for a long time, uh, 10 years or so. Um, he ended up getting sick and dying. His wife also, I believe, got sick and died one of his children, there was just one boy left, one little boy in their family, who went back to England. They shipped him back to England. They didn't have a single convert. It seemed like the whole effort was a waste. What had they accomplished? They all died there. The little boy grew up um, in God's providence. He eventually came to faith, became a pastor, um, and he was at some conference, some event, And there was a black man in the conference, and they began talking. And he said, where are you from? And the man mentioned the name of the country that his dad had served in. And it had been 30 years. And he said, well, my father served there, and there was no hint of anyone receiving the gospel. They died there. And he said, don't you know what happened? After you left, the gospel took root Because of the sacrifice and the ministry of this family, the gospel had grown and now was everywhere in this country. The man who was there as a missionary never saw the results of his ministry at all, but he was faithful. And this is our encouragement. This is Paul's encouragement as well. The work is God's work. Please stand for the reading of God's holy word. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I'll read verses 1 through 6. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, It is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please be seated. Remember that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Our good and great God, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for the encouragement that we have in it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would apply it to our hearts. We pray that you strike a straight blow with this very crooked stick in the name of Jesus. Amen. It has often been noted, and I've mentioned it a few times, that this is the least systematic of Paul's letters. It's because he's under such a great burden. He's under such great distress for this church. In the midst of personal suffering, he writes this letter, so you see a lot of emotion in what he writes. It's kind of like reading the Psalms. You get to see David's heart in the Psalms in the midst of his suffering, as we will tonight in Psalm chapter 34. Here in 2 Corinthians, we see the heart of this great man just bursting out in various times and various places throughout the letter. How he walked through the suffering that God had sent him. The result of all the suffering was that he gained confidence in the power of the gospel. In the midst of a very difficult church, Paul was considered very inefficient, insufficient, not eloquent, not powerful, not honest, not genuine, not recommended. And in light of all this, Paul takes comfort and confidence in the gospel of Christ. He takes encouragement in Christ, as should we all. So we'll look at our work, ministers and all of us. Our work, number two, we'll look at Satan's work, and thirdly, we'll see God's work. Our work, Satan's work, and God's work in this passage. What does Paul say his primary job is, our work is, as ministers and yours, as those who are in the community? We see that in verse 2. He says it's by the open statement of the truth that he commends himself to everyone's conscience. Paul is so confident in the message, as we discussed last week, he didn't need to fiddle with the message. He didn't need to to work hard at finding new and uh, inspirational ways to present the message. He needed to speak the truth in sincerity. And in this way, he's commended, he says, by God and man. He's commended to everyone's conscience. As we heard in Sunday school, In every church, really, there are the saved and the unsaved. There's the visible church and the invisible church. But also the same thing applies to all of the world. A preaching of the gospel is never going to return void. It's a savor of life or a savor of death. But everyone's conscience realizes that truth has been encountered. How is this, even among the unregenerate? Romans 2 tells us, verse 15, that the law of God is written on their hearts, bearing witness, their conflicting thoughts, accusing or even excusing them. There's a sense in which when the word is preached that everyone, regenerate, regenerate or unregenerate, even though they may not accept it, knows that they've encountered some truth. 
It's on their hearts that there is a God, that a judgment is coming. They know by what has been seen or in creation that there is a God, that there's something greater than them, that they owe allegiance to God even though they do not know Him. But they still reject this and prefer their own wisdom. How much more do believers filled with the Holy Spirit when you hear the truth of God? How much more should you hear it and believe it? And Paul states to this church that he's confident that by speaking the truth, he's commended to everyone's conscience, whether they receive his message or not. In one sense, he's already said that it's kind of none of his business. God has to do the work. Paul walks in the way of all the prophets who came before him. The prophet Isaiah, who feels himself very sinful, inadequate for the task, but sufficient in Christ because of the Spirit of God. And all pastors throughout the ages can trust God for the results. They need to be faithful in preaching. We see this in the earliest parts of the Scriptures in Exodus chapter 4, this same, this same cycle of relying on God alone. Exodus 4, when God called Moses... The Lord said to him, Moses said, I'm not, I'm not a good speaker. I can't do this. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Therefore, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and I will teach you what you shall speak. Praise God. What an encouragement for anyone who would share the gospel. I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Similarly, when Jeremiah received his call and he responded, I cannot do this. I'm too young. I'm not a preacher. Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, the Lord said to me, Do not say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, literally, do not be afraid of their faces. For I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. God's calling these men to be faithful to tell the truth, to preach the truth. Paul was confident that his job was to preach the truth, to proclaim the gospel, to preach it to unbelievers and believers alike to preach it with his words, to live it with his life. So the first part of our work as we see it is to speak the truth of God and love. But we see also that all of this is done, Paul says, in the sight of God. We live in the sight of God. The Latin is quorum Deo, before the face of God. Dr. R.C. Sproul says, to live one's entire life in the presence of God or under the authority of God. To the glory of God is what it means to live in the sight of God. Of course, this is not just for ministers. This is for all Christians to remember that we live in the sight of God. Paul says he does his work in the sight of God before the face of God. This simply acknowledges that Paul relies on God for everything and God sees everything that he does. God's with him in his ministry. 
He'll preserve him and keep him. He'll prosper the message. He'll make the truth stick and God will do the work. Despite the trial and hardship that Paul was facing in the church, his job was to be faithful. Brother and sister, your job is to be faithful. To be faithful. To speak the truth in love. And if you don't speak truth, the truth of the gospel, when God gives opportunity, you're not truly loving in the sense that Paul is loving the church. But it requires courage to speak the gospel to people because people are so blind to it and so opposed to the, to the understanding that they must bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Where do you find that courage? Well, you remember like Paul that you live before the face of God. What you do is done before the face of God who sees all things. He orders your life and to Him alone must you give account. And not only that, living in the sight of God hearkens to the Hebrew, the ironic blessing. This must have been in Paul's mind when he wrote those words that we do this before the face of God. To have God turn His face toward you was a thing of great blessing and comfort for the people of God. That He would put His name upon you in that way and look at you and give you peace. When God turns His face toward you, it's a great blessing. He's with you and He's with Paul. Like Paul, we are to speak the truth. But that's not all. That's not the end of the story. There will be opposition to the gospel message. We know this. Or to the messenger, whoever that might be. Even you. This opposition is clearly seen to be the work of Satan. This is the second point. We have work to do. It's to proclaim the truth in the sight of God. But the second thing is to notice that Satan is also working against us. This is verses 3 and 4 where Paul says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Why? Because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. It's important, I believe, for us to remember just as a basic understanding of how the world is, that those who do not embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're not just making a poor decision. They're not just not understanding something. They're blinded by Satan. They're bound in slavery to sin. They're following the prince of the power of the air, and that's the enemy of mankind and the enemy of God. And they cannot even see God. Ephesians 2 says that you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in, at work in the sons of disobedience, that's Satan, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul understands that the people of the world, all of them, have been given over to rebellion and that Satan has been given some measure of influence in this world. Indeed, God has given Satan some authority in this world over the people in it as well. We even see Jesus in John chapter 12, verse 31, calling Satan the ruler of this world. What does he mean? Does he mean that Jesus himself isn't ruling the world? No, he's just describing the state of things as they were at that time and still continue to be in some measure. 
Satan has been given authority in this world. And this influence we see everywhere. Not just in the minds of unbelievers, which is Paul's emphasis, but we see it in government. We see it in culture. We see it in commerce or philosophy or education or any other realm of human experience. We see the influence of the enemy turning the hearts of people away from God. We see the pride and deception of Satan in all these areas, but especially as it relates to the light of the gospel, which is rejected by the unregenerate man. And remember, Paul's writing a church. So even in the church, men are convinced sometimes that some bit of their own work is is somehow helpful to God, somehow helpful to the gospel and bringing us to God. And following Satan's prideful lead, men are kept from the true gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, that we're saved by grace through faith. This is God's work to a helplessly lost people, to a blind people. And we see this picture of blindness, this helplessness, this slavery to the enemy in the exodus of Egypt. The Egyptians were all powerful. The Israeli people, the the Israelites were there as slaves. Remember during the time of Joseph, he had brought his whole family there. Uh, This is 400 years later and they had grown into a numerous people and they live in slavery to Pharaoh. Absolute slavery, absolute control, no hope of any escape in their own power. And yet God heard their cry and he sent them a savior in the form of Moses. And then they just watched God do his work. God single-handedly brought this, this people, thought by some to be over a million people, brought this people out of Egypt and defeated the most powerful ruler of the earth by swallowing him up in the Red Sea. And Scripture makes it clear that Pharaoh was used like a tool in the Lord's hands to display his own glory. Similarly, the perishing world is blinded to the gospel in slavery to sin and in slavery to Satan without any hope, and they need a Savior. But we should remember, like Pharaoh, Satan is also used as a tool in God's hands. It's not a fair fight at all. Satan's a created being, and God uses him for his glory. And certainly in our lives, we can look back and we can see even the attacks of Satan in our own life. In light of God's redeeming and sanctifying purposes and give him glory. So Paul clearly sees that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers and yet he's still encouraged in the gospel of Christ. God does the work. He speaks the truth and love. This is Paul's job as faithfully as he possibly can. And that Satan has no hope of victory. So he speaks the truth of the gospel of Christ before the face of God. He takes courage even in the midst of satanic bondage. But that's a false hope for the enemy because God has work to do as well. And Paul talks about this. Of course, this is the gospel, God's work. In verse 4, he says that Satan does his work to keep men from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
Let's talk about God's work. Since the death and resurrection of Jesus, the church knows for certain that victory is ours. We're still in a battle. We're the church militant. Once Christ returns, we are called the church triumphant. So we're still in a battle, but the victory is certain. The victory is assured. Satan may have been given the power of death for a time, but Christ broke the power of Satan. Things changed when Christ came, died, and rose again. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ cannot be stopped. The church was once limited really to a small country called Israel. Now it's exploded over all of the earth. Just as Jesus said would happen. In Matthew 16 verse 18, he talks about the spiritual battle and he says to Peter, On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is declaring that in this new life of the church, this new phase of the church, that the people of God will attack the gates of hell. So the the imagery is a city, a city, a stronghold surrounded by by walls that are high. And the, the strongest part of the wall was often the gate where people would enter and they would they would fortify the gate in so many ways, to prevent it from being assaulted. So if the rule of Satan on earth is the city, uh, the gate to the city is what Jesus is saying, will not be able to withstand our assault, the church's assault. Do you see? The work of the church in the gospel, in the proclamation of the gospel, cannot stand. So although some are prevented from seeing the light of the glory of Christ who is the image of God, it's only by the will of God because the gospel is exploding all over the world, breaking down the gates of the enemy and Satan can do nothing before the work of God. The gates of hell will fall before the proclamation of the gospel of the glory of Christ if you remember before Jesus made that statement to Peter, that's right before, uh, right after Peter had said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this truth, of course, is the victory. It doesn't depend on us seeing it or doing anything, but it's foundational to understanding God's kingdom victory on the earth. And as people see the glory of Christ, the image of Christ, as they see Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, as Peter did, the gates of hell are battered down. So we see that the result of God's work first includes a defeat of Satan. Christ defeated sin and death on the cross. But how exactly do we see that kingdom God's kingdom defeating the kingdom of Satan practically today. How is that happening? Well, of course, it's the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the truth. In verse 5, he says, What we proclaim, this word is also preach, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. In the Greek, that word proclaim or preach also can mean shout, a loud announcement. 
Through the preaching of the gospel, Jesus is glorified. Through the preaching of the gospel, the gates of the enemy are battered down. And he says, we don't preach ourselves, but we preach Jesus. Dr. Charles Hodge said that the great end of Paul's preaching was to bring people to receive and acknowledge Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah and the Supreme Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And this is the only proper end of preaching. It's the only proper end of our lives. This is how we bring glory to God, to live in light of that truth. Jesus Christ is proclaimed as Lord and Paul says that this ministry is nothing, but the object of our ministry, the object of our worship is everything. His efforts are nothing, but the one to whom he proclaims is everything. So who is this Jesus Christ, the Lord? Let's look at those words. I think it's often our... our, It's often our habit to read phrases like this, Jesus Christ the Lord, and not really think about what the words communicate, what they say. How many times have you read Jesus Christ and not thought about it? So I want us to think about it for a moment. Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the English Joshua. Same word in English as Joshua. The same name, if you will. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. And in Hebrew, names and words often were the same. So Yeshua, in Hebrew, is the word salvation. So Jesus' name was Yeshua. Jesus' name was salvation. It would be like having someone in the congregation whose name was actually salvation. It's like someone who's named Grace, or someone who's named Mercy, or other biblical words. His name is salvation. In the Old Testament, when you read the word salvation, it's most likely a form of the word Yeshua. But what is Christ? Christ is not his name. Christ is his title. Jesus, Yeshua is the name. Christ is the title. In Hebrew, it's the word Mashiach, which we would say Messiah. It means anointed one, Messiah. Jesus was set apart. He was the anointed one to do the work of God on the earth, the promised Savior of all the earth. And the Messiah came to earth, sent by the Father to take the sins of His people. Those in Israel today who are Christ followers will call Jesus Christ Yeshua HaMashiach. Yeshua Amashiach, Christ, Jesus Christ. But the Lord, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Again, this is another title. It's a descriptor of Jesus. The Lord is the one who rules the land, who has authority, all authority and all power. Lord is almost exactly the same word for master. He controls everything. And the title Lord was added to Jesus Christ's name after His resurrection by the apostles and the writers of the New Testament to reflect His complete dominance over all things, His deity. 
We see in John chapter 20 when Thomas sees Jesus for the first time after his resurrection, what does he say? He doesn't say Jesus Christ. He says, my Lord and my God. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches, he said, Let all Israel be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah, Lord and Christ. Jesus, of course, refers to himself as Lord. And we should all strive to honor Christ the Lord as holy in our hearts. So why is he Lord and Master? Why do we, why do we attribute this title to him as the apostles do? He left His glory in heaven. He came to earth. To call Jesus Lord is to acknowledge that He is God, that He is our Master. He conquered death and hell. And we owe Him obedience. Not only as loyal and beloved slaves, but as children who are adopted. So God's work was one, to defeat Satan, but two, to send His Son to accomplish our redemption. And then three, to send His Spirit to apply this redemption, to open our spiritual eyes. I have a good friend who's struggling hearing. His, his, his hearing is, is failing. And I asked him, have you considered getting some hearing aids? He said, well, yes, I have. See, that's important because we have the technology to help people hear, but it has to be applied to your ears for them to work. In the same way, the the work of Christ has been done, but it has to be applied to our lives by the Holy Spirit to be effective. So how does that happen? Well, we see that in verse 6 and other places, of course. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So when people are blinded by Satan and cannot hear the gospel, that changes when God speaks, when God decides. This is the electing of the Father. And then following that, the regeneration of the Spirit. The Father chooses, of course. The Son does the work, and then the Spirit applies the work. The Father elects. The Son comes to collect, and the Spirit corrects. The Father commands that we become a people for His own possession. He he predestined us for adoption as sons. He's elected us for salvation. The Son comes as a man and lives a perfect life and dies on the cross and rises again. He accomplishes the work that's required. And then the Spirit regenerates our hearts and fills us with Christ and seals us by living in us. So in verse 6, we see that God commanded, God said, let light shine out of darkness. Remember, the context is the blindness of humanity. Let light, the light of the Spirit, burst into the darkness. We spoke last week of the hymn, And Can It Be? The dungeon of our sinful hearts is dark. And when God lets light shine into the dungeon of our hearts, diffusing all of the the darkness with a, a ray of light, the Holy Spirit, 
The stony dead heart of man becomes a new creation. The old is past. Behold, all has become new. It happens when the Spirit regenerates your heart. And for the first time we see, we're unblinded. We see Christ for the first time for who He is and we see ourselves like Isaiah did, as a man of unclean lips. This is the Gospel that reveals Christ's glory. What does Christ's glory mean? What is Paul referring to there? It's all the attributes displayed in His person and His work. We see that in everything that He did. Look at, look at Philippians chapter 2. Look at John chapters 1 and 2. He left joyfully in submission to His Father to come to earth in love. Righteous suffering for sinful man and perfection. Walking this earth in tenderness and gentleness. Amidst the people that in large measure rejected Him and everything about Him and all of His ministry, they rejected it. And He remained gentle and kind. He submitted to death on a cross in love for His Father and for His people. And in His glorious ascension, we see His glory as well and His triumphant return someday to judge the living and the dead. To see the glory of Christ in summary is to understand how by the Spirit, to understand how wonderful and how precious Jesus is. And to love Him. I commend to you few, very few books, but I would commend to you John Owen's The Glory of Christ. If you want to deepen your love for your Savior. He's the visible image of the invisible God. So this is God's work. We see our work, which is to just be faithful and speak the truth, all of us. But we know that we're going to be opposed by Satan. There's a, a Satan who blinds people's eyes. But then we see God's work is so much more powerful and so much more significant than anything Satan could do. And in conclusion, we, we see that this changes us. Seeing the glory of Christ changes each one of us. It changes how we view ourselves, how we view the world, how we view God Himself. And one of the ways it changes us is seen in verse 5 of this passage. Paul says that he views himself and his, his companions as slaves for Jesus' sake. Slaves of the church. This is Paul's very favorite metaphor in all of the New Testament to describe our salvation more than a father and an adopted son, more than a shepherd with his sheep, more than any other metaphor. The New Testament speaks of our relationship with God using the language of slavery. When he talks of our redemption, our being redeemed, he's using slave language. When you read servant or bondservant, the odds are that it's just the plain old-fashioned word for slave. There's six Greek words that mean servant. There's only one word that means slave. And Paul, the master theologian, would have known the difference. But it's not a popular word. And it hasn't ever been a popular word. So why would Paul and Peter and James and the apostles call themselves God's slaves and slaves of the church? 
because it says something about their service to the Lord and how they view their service to the church as well. They see the love and the gratitude and the commitment and the debt that they owe their Savior, their Redeemer, who brought them out of slavery to sin and death, certain eternal punishment, and brought them into life and freedom. In His grace, He's also redeemed you from slavery to sin. And in your newfound freedom with eyes that now see Christ, you willingly submit yourself to Him as Lord and Master. You carry His easy yoke and His light burden. You serve Him as a beloved Savior. And you do this with joy. And when you do this, you're actually imitating Christ Himself. And this is, this is a wonderful truth. Philippians 2 says that we, have, we are to have this mind among ourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, taking the form of a slave, and being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is why Paul says that he was a slave of the church in Corinth for Christ's sake. He's imitating his master, don't you see? And we imitate our masters when we lay down our lives for each other. When we lay down our lives for Jesus Christ. Certainly the gospel must be preached and taught with words. The proclamation of the gospel, the shouting of the gospel from the rooftops is our duty. But the power of your testimony is also seen in how much you are like Christ. Humble, gentle, kind. Viewing yourself as a slave for the church and a slave for each other. Putting others before yourself. Considering others a better than yourself. Making yourself nothing for the sake of the gospel. This can only happen in light of God's diffusing ray bursting through the darkness of our hearts and sanctifying us throughout our lives. Praise God. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful for your mercy, so grateful for your diffusing ray of light and of life and of truth. Thank you that you've redeemed us out of darkness. Our eyes, which were once blinded, have now been opened by the Holy Spirit. We who once lived in rebellion now embrace you. We offer our lives to you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God as our spiritual act of worship. We pray in Jesus' name that you would continue to do your work inside each one of us and that we might take the good news and proclaim it to all of our community, to all that we know. And we pray this in Jesus' name.